Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 105, Thomas Kidd and the Spanish Tragedy. Last time, I concluded my look at the Elizabethan playhouses and promised you an episode on Thomas Kidd and his play The Spanish Tragedy, to fill in the last major gap in what we might consider the first wave of Elizabethan dramatists. Previously, it's taken a full episode to detail the life and times of a playwright, but in Kidd's case, we know so very little about his life that this episode will be mostly about his significant surviving play. Fortunately, there is much to say there, as it is a play that has considerable influence on the work of the next generation of playwrights. As you will hear, like many other plays of the period, its survival as a script for us today is close to miraculous. And it so easily could have been another lost play that's influence was undeniable, but where the content is unknown to us. Thankfully, we do have a script that is close to one degree or another to the original production and we can see how the Spanish tragedy is another step towards what would become the heights of Elizabethan theatre in the following decades. We will get to that, but first, here is what we know about the life of Thomas Kidd. Records show Thomas, son of Francis and Anna Kidd, being baptised at the St Mary Woolnoth Church in the City of London on the 6th of November 1558. Francis, it is generally held but not proven, was a scrivener, a professional copier of letters and documents, someone who worked as part of the staff of a local bigwig or who hired their services out on a more ad hoc basis. We can say that he was successful because his son Thomas attended the Merchant Tailors School, an institution that had been set up by the Guild in 1561 for the sons of middle-class merchant families. Along with several other guild schools established in that period, the Merchant Tailors School provided an education for paying pupils, with fees being subsidised by the guild. Schools of this type hoped that the cream of the pupils would go to university and or become leading members of the guild. But guild membership wasn't a prerequisite. The school's curriculum is significant. It included Latin, French and Italian, all of which were essential for university placement but also a good grounding for the future translating work that Kidd would undertake. The school also records plays being performed by the pupils in both Latin and English, and Kidd is likely to have taken part in these exercises. The Merchant Taylor School became very well known in the period when Kidd attended, as its headmaster, Richard Mulcaster, practised and published new theories on education that set out a rigorous curriculum that became very influential. So, even though there is no evidence that Kidd went to university like some of his literary contemporaries, he did, at least, get a good educational grounding. He then followed his father into the scrivener's profession. Much of this detail that we have about Kidd comes from Thomas Nash, who mentions him in his introduction to some of Philip Green's published works. He is scornful of Kidd's talent, But it is a satirical piece, and it's hard to judge the exact degree of truthfulness in Nash's statements. However, the consensus is that Nash's view is generally not too far from the reality of Kidd's situation. Nash disparages Kidd's lack of learning, confirming that he was not university educated, and prefiguring Green's later comments about Shakespeare for similar reasons. 
Nash also accuses Kidd of needing to pad out his blank verse with ands and buts due to his lack of skill as a poet, which certainly does have some truth about it. But Nash and Green had sharp tongues, and this is about the man who roomed with Marlowe. So he must have fitted into the London playwriting set at some intellectual level, and presumably at a personal level too. So much of the detail about Kidd is vague and uncertain, but he certainly was in the service of a lord as a scrivener, and it's possible that that lord was Lord Strang, patron of his own acting troupe. Possibly it was working for the theatre-loving lord that turned Kidd to try his hand at playwriting. Or maybe it was the theatre connection that drove Kidd to seek employment with Strang. We'll never know. The Spanish tragedy, formerly subtitled Hieronimo is Mad Again, but often just referred to as Hieronimo in reference to its main protagonist, was registered with the stationer's office in October 1592 and was published in a quarto edition later that year. That edition purports to include some updates made after it was changed during performances. It's possible that the play was written in the 1580s and was only published when it was met with some successful performances sometime after that. That uncertainty means that we don't have details about which company performed it first, but given Kidd's association with Lord Strang and the fact that his men are recorded as having performed the play 16 times in 1592 at the Rose Theatre as a revival, it seems likely that they were also the originators some years before. At that time, 16 performances of a play in a short period means that it was very popular, and the revival by the Admiral's men in 1597 and another later revival by the Lord Chamberlain's men would seem to confirm that it remained popular in the repertoire. Multiple reprints well into the Jacobean period further confirm its popularity. The subtitle Hieronimo is Mad Again has led to speculation that the Spanish tragedy could be a sequel to a now lost play. There are some references in the record that could support this, but the play itself is not clearly a sequel or half of a pair of plays in the way that the second part of Tamblaine the Great is. And if this is the case, well we have no inkling of what might have been in that first part, except by implication that Hieronimo was in it and at some point was subject to madness. The only other play attributed to Kidd with certainty is Cornelia, probably written in 1594 and a translation of the French play by Robert Garnier. You might remember that he produced the greatest tragedies in Paris from the mid-1560s onwards. And for a reminder of my take on him, you need to go back to season 4, episode 7, an episode called French Renaissance Theatre, The Italian Influence. Cornelia is a Senecan-style tragedy focusing on the wife of Roman leader Pompey. We can conclude from that that Kidd was well aware of the new translations of Seneca that were published in 1581 or thereabouts. But there is no indication that Cornelia was well received or much performed. With less certainty, it's possible that Kidd wrote his own version of Hamlet, which some scholars believe heavily influenced Shakespeare's version of the story and therefore refer to it as the Ur-Hamlet. There are other theories about plays that he might have written or at least had a hand in, the most significant of which is the officially anonymous Arden of Faversham, a very early domestic tragedy. Speculative thinking also places him helping the young Shakespeare with his early works Titus Andronicus and Henry VI. 
There is some textual analysis that supports this idea, not least the degree of violence in Titus Andronicus, which feels very kid-like. Kidd was in London when the Spanish tragedy was registered and mixing with the Cambridge Wits set. We know he was sharing lodgings with Christopher Marlowe in May 1593 because it was then that he was arrested for possession of treasonable materials. His testimony suggests that he had been living with Marlowe for a couple of years. That, given Marlowe's reputation, has led to speculation about the nature of their relationship but there is nothing in the record to suggest that it was anything more than an economic necessity. As you'll remember from the episode on the short life and strange death of Christopher Marlowe, Kidd was tortured and claimed that the papers in his room that denied the divinity of Christ belonged to his roommate. In a later letter, he confirmed that he had said this under torture, and this is the only document with details of Kidd's life, apart from Nash's commentary, that has survived. It's difficult to say how closely Kidd was associated with the more controversial thinkers of the time. Some scholars suggest he could have been a close member of the Walter Raleigh group. Others think that he was just a member of the looser intellectual set of which the London playwrights were part, and his association with Marlowe was nothing more than unfortunate. The wrong place, at the wrong time. We know that he died sometime before December 30th, 1594, when his mother had to make a legal declaration to avoid becoming liable for debts on his estate. As he was only in his mid-thirties when he died, there is a suggestion that the events that led up to Marlowe's death, and in particular the torture that Kidd was subjected to, broke his health, or his spirit, or both, and led to his early death. The earliest printed edition of the Spanish tragedy we have is not dated and it doesn't name Kidd as the author. Only the printer, Edward Aldi, and publisher, Edward White, are credited on the title page. But it is said to be newly corrected and amended for such gross faults as passed in the first impression. There is a story here that gives us an insight into the sometimes less than reputable world of play publishing in Elizabethan London. By late July 1592, publisher Abel Jeffers features in a dispute with the stationer's company over an earlier published version of the Spanish tragedy that he had issued. Indications are that shortly after this, Edward White bought out a superior version, updated via a manuscript obtained from a playing company. White didn't have the authority to publish this version, and Jeffers staked his claim to the rights with the stationer's office. In December that year, White was judged to have published illegally. The judgment read that White had illegally printed the Spanish tragedy belonging to Abel Jeffers, and he was fined ten shillings for doing so. In an almost comic twist, at about the same time, Jeffers published Arden of Faversham, a play to which White had the rights and White was able to successfully sue Jeffers for an equal amount of fines. Copies of both the offending editions were commanded to be forfeited, and unsold copies were confiscated. The original surviving copy of the Spanish tragedy that we have is the version published by White, but authorised by Jeffers, so clearly they reached a compromise that allowed for publication after the mutual fining had been completed. 
The exact nature of the additions that survived into the edition are difficult to ascertain, but it is likely that the original play underwent several changes, and it is now just one version of those that we have in what we now call the original. Tantalisingly, Henslow's diary entry for the 25th of September 1601 refers to paying Edward Allen 40 shillings to lend unto Benjamin Johnson upon his writing for the additions to Geronimo. That's Geronimo with a G rather than Hieronimo, but despite the difficulties with the spelling there, it is assumed that this refers to the Spanish tragedy. But attempts to identify the Ben Johnson updates through analysis of the writing styles have been inconclusive. Perhaps Johnson, as another dramatist who followed his lead, was very good at imitating Kidd's style. The academic discussions about the early printings of this play and how changes to it can and can't be traced to their source have gone on for many years, and I won't trouble you further with details here that are ultimately inconclusive. And so, to the details of the play. The Spanish tragedy takes place during a war between Portugal and Spain, who at the time ruled the entire Iberian Peninsula and the main action commences after a battle that the Portuguese lost. Although anti-Spanish feeling in England was not at its height when the play was written, the setting and the pitting of two Catholic states against each other would no doubt have appealed to the Protestant English audience. During the battle, the Portuguese viceroy's son, Balthazar, has killed a Spanish officer, Andrea, and has then been taken hostage by the Spanish. Andrea's ghost, who recounts this information as a prologue, and the character of revenge personified are on stage for the entire play and fulfil the role of a chorus, commenting on the action as it unfolds. The play opens as the Spanish king's nephew Lorenzo argues with Andrea's friend Horatio over who took Balthazar hostage. It is made obvious that it was Horatio who took Balthazar as his prize and that Lorenzo is trying to wrongly claim the credit, But the king puts Lorenzo in charge of Balthazar and divides the spoils of war between them. Horatio consoles Belle Imperia, Lorenzo's sister, who had been in love with Andrea despite her family's opposition. But Belle Imperia soon moves on from Andrea and, it seems, falls in love with Horatio. But she explains that any love for Horatio is driven by a desire for revenge knowing that she can leverage that relationship to torment Balthazar, Andrea's murderer. Meanwhile, Balthazar is falling in love with Belle Imperia. The King of Spain proclaims that Balthazar and Belle Imperia should get married in order to restore peace between Spain and Portugal. Hieronimo, Horatio's father and a marshal of Spain, sets up a party for the ambassador to Portugal. Lorenzo suspects that Belle Imperia has found a lover, and forces her servant, Pedringano, to reveal Horatio's identity. Lorenzo and Balthazar seek out Horatio, and, discovering him in the garden with Belle Imperia, they murder him. Later, Hieronimo and his wife Isabella come upon Horatio's body, hung and pierced with daggers, and the sight of her dead son drives Isabella mad. Lorenzo imprisons Belle Imperia, but she still manages to send a message to Hieronimo by writing a note with her own blood. It tells him that Lorenzo and Balthazar killed Horatio. Hieronimo tries to visit her in prison, causing Lorenzo to suspect that he knows who killed Horatio. Suspicious that Seberine, Balthazar's servant, leaked this information, he gets Pedringana to murder her, while cleverly setting up Pedringano's arrest, 
so that he will be unable to speak about the crime. Hieronimo is appointed as a judge and gives Pedringano the death sentence. Pedringano anticipates that Lorenzo will pardon him, having seen a fake pardon letter drafted by Lorenzo, but this is just a ruse to ensure his continuing silence, and when no pardon materialises, Pedringano is hung. Lorenzo successfully keeps his scheming a secret by telling the king that Horatio is still alive, and as he controls access to the king he also prevents Hieronimo from seeing him and seeking the punishment for those responsible for the death of his son. When Isabella commits suicide, Hieronimo goes insane, saying incoherent sentences and digging at the ground with his dagger. Lorenzo goes to his uncle and tells him that Hieronimo is acting strangely because he is jealous of his son Horatio's huge wealth obtained from the Viceroy at the end of the battle. Hieronimo regains his faculties. His apparent madness was a ruse and, joining up with Bellimperia, pretends to reconcile with the murderers. He invites them to help him stage a play called Soliman and Persida as an entertainment for the royal court. The play is prepared with parts allocated to the murderers and other courtiers and Hieronimo secretly replaces prop daggers with real ones, intending for Lorenzo and Balthazar to die in the view of the king, the viceroy and the duke, Lorenzo's and Bel Imperia's father, as they perform the play. The murders and the suicides play out as plotted, but Hieronimo's plan also results in Bel Imperia inadvertently committing suicide when she stabs herself at a dramatic moment. The crowd is shocked, and Hieronimo takes the stage to explain the purpose behind the murders. He bites off his own tongue to render him unable to reveal any more information under the torture that he anticipates. Then he murders the Duke and commits suicide. Hieronimo's death is the only one that occurs off stage. The final tableau is one of bodies strewn across the stage, while in the background, Revenge and the Ghost of Andrea announce that they are content with the outcome of the tragedy. They vow to punish the guilty for the rest of eternity, giving the play a Christian moral ending, as they suggest that one's moral life continues outside the scope of a human lifetime. Hieronimo and Bellimperia will, they assure the audience, find their reward in the eternal bliss of heaven. Well, I hope that synopsis is not too confusing. I intentionally kept it brief and quite high level. The plot is complex, as the multiple intrigues and then deaths pile up on top of each other and interweave, and that complexity is one of the standout points of the play. Kids certainly had high expectations of an audience's ability to follow the ins and outs of a fast-moving story, which is not one where familiarity with a plot could be assumed, as it would be were he retelling a well-known myth. The first impression of this play, even when just reading it off the page, is the incredible pace, the unrelenting violence and the fiendish machinations of the main protagonists to bring their plans to fruition. And this is not achieved through the text, more of which later, but through the speed of the plotting, despite the nature and the structure of the text. If nothing else, the play is an unrelenting portrait of a corrupt court, of aristocracy, whose only concern is for their social position and to fulfil their own personal desires. Similarities to Shakespeare's Hamlet cannot be ignored. The Spanish tragedy lacks the moodiness of the Danish court and Shakespeare's thoughtfulness, but key plot points seem familiar. 
there is the overreaching desire for dramatic revenge driven by the death of a loved relation. But more specifically, the use of the play within the play to advance the plot, feigned madness as a tool of revenge, and the degree of hesitation before the protagonist acts on the driving need for revenge that takes him to extreme actions are all striking similarities. When discussing Marlowe, Kidd's absolute contemporary, I was able to praise his use of language and the leap forward that he made with his mighty line and the use of blank verse generally. Similar plays cannot be made of Kidd's poetry and prose. Contrary to the fast-paced action, the language tends towards the monotonous and often seems stilted and forced. He was as fond of the classical illusion as Marlowe was, but where Marlowe's usually feel lyrical and add to the imagery, Kidd's, more often than not, seem forced, shoehorned into the text, and are often very obscure and probably well beyond the comprehension of most of his audience. And the very construction of the verse is problematic. Some of his verse is too obviously formed for effect, and because it is obvious in its construction, the rhetorical effect of the language is diminished. For example, this is part of the description of the battle that starts the process of the events of the play. There met our armies in their proud array, both furnished well, both full of hope and fear, both menacing alike with darting shows, both vaunting sundry colours of device, both cheerily sounding trumpets, drums and fifes, both raising dreadful clamours to the sky. The repetition at the start of each line has some effect of implying gravity and the significance of events, but otherwise the verse lands quite flat, and we just know that Shakespeare, Marlowe and others would have made a much better job of it. That said, the opening lines of the play were, for the next century or so, often quoted and parodied as often as the most famous of Shakespeare's lines. To give you a sense of the language, in that opening, the ghost of Andrea declares. When this eternal substance of my soul did leave impoverished in my wanton flesh, each in their function serving others' need, I was a courier in the Spanish court. My name was Don Andrea. My descent, though not ignoble, yet inferior far. Two gracious fortunes of my tender youth, for there in prime and pride of all my years, by duteous service and deserving love, in secret I possessed a worthy dame, which hight sweet Belle Imperia by name. But in the harvest of my summer joys, death's winter nipped the blossoms of my bliss, forcing divorce between my love and me. Kidd was on firmer ground when dealing with the dramatic and especially the visual spectacle. He understood that theatre functioned best when it showed events, rather than reporting them, and that it had to entertain before it could pose questions for careful consideration. He used elements of the familiar dumb show and the mask integrated into his play, not as diversions from it, and put bloody and violent events centre stage, not merely repeated by the ubiquitous messenger. He had a good sense for the grand visual scene. At the end of the play, the stage is littered with dead bodies, all victims of violent ends. Such an ending became a trope of the revenge tragedy genre, and that started here notwithstanding it's not to Seneca. It's a reasonable argument that Shakespeare learnt from this play about how to craft a dramatic ending. Kidd also had a talent for ending scenes with a neat rhymed couplet, another feature that Shakespeare may have picked up from him. 
But the debts and similarities that we can pick out also help to illustrate why Shakespeare went on to be the much better playwright. For example, although there are comparisons between the mad scenes in the Spanish tragedy and Hamlet, it is Shakespeare that uses the scene to the much greater effect. Where Hieronimo more or less rants incoherently for an overextended period just to give a dramatic portrayal of madness, Hamlet achieves the same dramatic effect in much more tempered tones, as well as giving us an alternate view of life, explaining how events might have been seen were we living in another man's shoes. Hamlet's madness is a thoughtful and coherent one, something that is not true of Hieronymus. The effect of the constant presence of the ghost and revenge on stage is easy to forget if you're just reading the play, but in performance this could be powerful. One interpretation of their constant presence is that they act as a reminder that in the play, the eternal soul of man and his body of flesh are separate things, but trapped with an unbreakable dependency on each other. And it is the passions of the flesh that sometimes lead to unconscionable acts. That rather intellectual reading may have appealed to some in the audience, but let's not mistake this play for a morality play. Kidd used the ghost as a prologue to fill in the backstory of the play, and then to act as a sort of chorus. The opening with the ghost inevitably leads to another comparison with Hamlet, but this is to be very generous to the Spanish tragedy. The ghost of Hamlet's father drives the plot in Shakespeare's play and makes for a very dramatic opening. Kidd, I would suggest, lacked Shakespeare's skills in crafting such dramatic action, and Andrea's ghost can read as rather flat on the page and comes across as a rather tempered sort of revenge. In fact, even the personification of revenge constantly advises restraint in the pursuit of revenge, and is another who is rather lacklustre as a protagonist. Although the personification of revenge and the constant presence of these characters remind us of the medieval form, a form that was still being sometimes performed at the time of the Spanish tragedy, it's not an overtly moral tale in the same sense. The morality of the protagonists and the judgments upon them are not the driving force of the play. The ghost of Andrea is as much concerned with how he is remembered in the courtly society for his reputation as he is with revenge, and relies on the human passions of Hieronimo to fulfil his wishes. But Hieronimo is not alone. He has Belle Imperia's assistance. She is a force in the revenge for Andrea's death, switching her affections from Horatio as a means to affect that revenge and then joining forces with Hieronimo before becoming implicit in Balthazar's murder. Her own death is the only accidental one in the play. One view of her is that she can be played as an ambitious sexual temptress, as her language when leading Horatio on can be read as sexually explicit. Horatio is of a lower social standing in the court, which might explain her forthright temptation of him. He could not have expected advances from her, and attachment to her would elevate him socially, so he's happy to believe that her attentions are genuine, and she is able to lead him, quite passively, to his death. Passion is her driving force, and this must have been a startling attribute for a woman on stage at the time. Played by a young man, of course, but a character type that has been little, if at all, seen on the English stage in popular theatre but one that would soon become familiar and not just in tragedy. 
Women were to be barred from performing on the English stage until the Restoration, when Charles returned from exile with some European habits. But as leading characters, they were about to come into their own. Although the play goes some way to contrast the motivations of the characters, all but Hieronimo are very lightly drawn. Kidd, it seems to me, was trying to show the troubles in the Spanish court as driven by the desires and the dubious morality of the individuals involved, but they are all very much of a type. These individuals may be able to rule another country by force of arms, but that only leads to their corruption and, collectively, to a corrupt state. But honestly, this may be getting a bit too deep. The play is a blood-and-guts adventure, and, in the moment, as the audience gasp, cringe, or maybe even laugh at the latest violent act of revenge, I'm not sure that anyone could have been too worried about the moral concerns, or the lack thereof, of any of the characters on stage. But, for those who could remain aloof from the horrors contained in the action, there are moral questions that could be drawn out from the heart of the play. Hieronimo's desire for revenge is palpable and overriding, but he is conflicted. Unlike the Senecan models where the Roman concept of an eye for an eye was the accepted norm, we're now in a Christian setting, where revenge should at least be legally justified. Hieronimo counters this argument with the fact that his route to natural justice via the king is being blocked by those in power, most notably the scheming Lorenzo. It is a genuine dilemma, but not eloquently thought over in the way that Shakespeare might have done. The concept of the morality of revenge was a concern for the Elizabethans, and Kidd may well have been picking up on a current intellectual debate as he crafted his play. By placing a just man in a position where redress for the capital crime is seemingly impossible, he poses an interesting dilemma for his audience to consider. Many may have reacted negatively to the relish with which Hieronimo enacts his revenge, but others would have watched with some sympathy for the impossible position that he was put in. For all of the many criticisms of Kidd's play, it does show that he was a craftsman worthy of the title playwright. He may not have had the natural talents of Shakespeare, Marlowe and Johnson, but he knew how to craft a play that built through a series of mini-climaxes to an unforgettable ending. His great gift was for plotting, and by introducing such a well-wrought play, he pointed the way to a better theatre that moved away from the slapdash tendencies of many of the early writers of the period, which in time would help to elevate the position of the playwright and the respect in which he was held. And we shouldn't forget that he also had a talent for giving the audiences what they wanted. Other playwrights saw the commercial success of his play over a long period of time, followed his lead, and the revenge tragedy genre was created. And I don't think that it is an exaggeration to call Kidd the father of revenge tragedy. He built on Seneca's legacy, of course, and there were other early tragedies, but none of these, as far as we know, were a popular success. And it is Kidd's play that propelled revenge tragedy, and we might say tragedy in general, into the popular imagination. It's difficult to see that such success would have been forthcoming if tragedy had remained in the Senecan confines of the intellectual theatre of the Inns of Court, in the mould of plays like Gorboduc. In the Spanish tragedy, Kidd brought the form to life as a popular entertainment, 
and showed others what could be done. Yes, the play is imperfect, as others were to prove by their later efforts. But he pleased an audience, and for several decades, his play was one of the most popular ever produced. So, he deserves his place and our attention. Next time, it's back to Bankside and the Rose Theatre, as we take a dive into some of the detail in Henslow's diary and its day-to-day -day account of performances by the Admiral's men at the Rose. In the meantime, please join the Facebook page or group or find the podcast on Instagram or Twitter to keep up to date with new episodes and other theatre-related stuff. You can find details of ways to support the podcast at the website, which is www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com. It's only me here keeping the podcast going, so any encouragement or support is very gratefully accepted. If you do feel able to help out with the costs of running the podcast, then please head on over to Patreon, where you will find additional content for a small monthly fee or a one-off donation. Links are in the show notes, and you can also find details about all of that on the website. I look forward to your company next time, but if you do have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Thank you.